Hello, everyone. Welcome to Energy Security Cubed, where we explore the pillars that form the nexus of energy security in Canada and the world, energy, economics, and the environment. I'm your host, CEO of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Kelly Ogle. For today's podcast, we're featuring an interview with Crystal Smith, Chief Counselor of the Heisla Nation. But before we dive into that, I'll have a quick discussion with CGAI fellow and Energy Security Forum Manager, Joe Kalman, about the news stories affecting global energy security this week. How are things, Joe? I'm doing well, Kelly. Things are trucking along. Uh-huh. What's going on out there? Well, uh, first up, let's get into the recently announced oil production cuts by OPEC Plus and some of the international economic considerations surrounding this move. So uh, on Sunday, Saudi Arabia and other oil producers in the OPEC Plus cartel announced surprise oil output cuts of 1.16 million barrels per day. Uh, These cuts will be spearheaded by Saudi Arabia, which will contribute 500,000 barrels per day in cuts. Uh, So these cuts come alongside a commitment by Russia, uh, which is a pre-existing commitment to extend its 500,000 barrel per day output cut until the end of the year. Uh, As a result, oil prices have shot upward with WTI crude hitting $80 per barrel and Brent crude hitting $85 per barrel just a couple of weeks after both were sitting in the low 70s. This move underlines the increasing confidence that OPEC Plus has in its control over the oil market after years of worries about losing market share to American shale oil. Today, a combination of geological constraints alongside the discipline demanded by shareholders is curtailing the expansion plans of American oil companies, despite WTI prices, which are significantly above the 2018 and 2019 boom time. Interesting, Joe. You know, the U.S. Department of Energy has meanwhile returned to selling from rather than buying for the SPR, with 400,000 barrels being sold last week and an additional 26 million barrels to be sold in the next few months, according to Bloomberg's Javier Blas. Complicating the situation is Saudi Arabia's budget concerns. In a push to modernize and diversify its economy, Saudi Arabia is planning to spend upwards of $650 billion on enormous infrastructure projects of questionable logic, including a giant cube in Riyadh and a 170-kilometer-long city in the desert beside the Red Sea. The Wall Street Journal reports that Saudi officials believe the government budget requires oil prices in the 90 to 100 range, to pay for these projects. This puts Saudi Arabia at loggerheads with the United States where approval for President Joe Biden is strongly correlated with gasoline prices. We've talked about that before. It's the price of gasoline at the pump that moves the needle in the United States and will for some time, except maybe California. But risk remains for the global economy and therefore for the OPEC plus players who are looking to prop up prices. The specter of recession still hangs over the global economy and the IMF warned on Wednesday that the friendshoring sparked by the war in Ukraine threatens to depress growth. However, Paul Samuelson once said that the stock market has predicted nine of the last five recessions. So what will actually happen is anybody's guess. Yeah. And uh, speaking of which, why don't we take a a few guesses, Kelly, because it seems like everybody's just guessing with this uh, current oil market. Uh, As of the recording of this intro, the ICE Brent crude oil front month price per barrel is uh, around $84.95 U.S., Wag, don't we uh, take a guess over where we think the price will be at the beginning of May? Uh, we can guess on, say, 60 to $70 per barrel, 70 to $80 per barrel, 80 to $90 per barrel, uh, so on and so forth. I doubt we'll be getting up to $150 per barrel, but, you no. know, that's our guess. And this is the Brent price, not WTI. Yes, Brent price. So this is the global oil benchmark 
uh, Brent oil price, which is a little bit less affected by local considerations than uh, pretty much any other oil price uh, benchmark. Uh, we'll, of course, be wrong in uh, our estimations here, but it's a good thought experiment on uh, what we think could affect the price. So, uh, well, you Kelly, know, I've been trying to, I've been trying to do this for four decades, right? Because I was in the <laughs> business for so long and, the, you know, the only thing you know for sure, two things, you know, for sure you're going to be wrong. But number two, you're always looking at this if you're in the business, because if you're not, he if you're not hedging, you're gambling. <laughs> I'll say 80 to 90 about where it is right now. I don't mm -hmm. think there's enough upside in, in the markets in the East to heat it up at all. That, that could be totally different in, uh, June or July as driving season gets more in, in this, in the swing, but I think we're right about where it is right now. And I, you know what, I've said it before to you. I think I've said it on this podcast, OPEC likes oil in the 80 to 90 range. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm going to say uh, 70 to 80, actually. I think, uh, I think there's probably a few more nasty surprises to come out with, uh, you know, the U S fed continue to raise interest rates and, uh, you know, what we could be looking at where it comes to uh, outlooks for global economic growth because uh, of how much that affects the entire system. So uh, longer term, I think we're still going to be looking at higher oil prices probably by the end of the year. But I think in the short term, uh, the prices are a little bit too high considering the current situation. Uh, hey, but of so course, you're out there for 70 to 80 and I'm out there for 80 to 90. Yep, that sounds about right. Okay. What else, Joe? Uh, yeah, I'd also like to quickly talk about a major recent story in the mining world, which is uh, the commodity training and mining company Glencore's offer to buy tech resources for $23 billion in uh, a pure stock deal. The $23 billion is a 20% premium to tech's current share price. Uh, and for those who have not read uh, The World for Sale by uh, Javier Blas, uh, you should really read that book, first of all, because it's really great. Glencore is the world's largest commodity trading company, established in 1974 by businessman and international fugitive Mark Rich. Glencore has a storied and exciting past, which uh, led to the company being ordered by a U.S. court in February to pay $700 million as a punishment for bribery and corruption in South America and Africa. Uh, while Glencore maintains its active commodity trading business, it's also deeply involved in minerals production as one of the world's largest producers of coal, copper, and zinc. Um, in buying tech, Glencore envisions the creation of Glentech, which would hold Glencore and tech's combined industrial metals business, as well as Glencore's oil trading business. Uh, Glencore's thermal coal business, as well as tech's metallurgical coal business, would be spun off into another company. You know, it's this is another interesting development, Joe. And you know, Tech rejected the offer out of hand with a letter expressing concern about exposing Tech shareholders to Glencore's thermal coal and oil trading business. Tech's shareholders will have a vote on April 26th regarding the spin-off of its own metallurgical coal assets into a new company called Elk Valley Resources, which is intended to allow Tech to focus on its copper and zinc operations. Glencore has indicated this spinoff would spell the end of an, any attempt by tech, given Glencore's three weeks to convince tech shareholders to reject a proposal, which, in my opinion, will be rejected out of hand the, without, the, without a new offer. Um, these developments indicate the hot base of deals in the mining business. However, it's also indication of a larger trend in the mining industry, with companies focusing more on buying existing assets rather than investing capital in new mines. Just think about that, Joe. Glencore. You, it's just easier to buy other things rather than tr trying to get through the regulatory and environmental hoops that are in front of every jurisdiction in the world, no matter where you are. Um, 
you know, the, but it doesn't spell, it, it doesn't give a very good runway for the necessity of new materials in these spaces of like critical minerals and rare earths and just this, the straight forward mining products like uh, copper, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, it's uh, something to keep in mind, Joe, and to keep, we'll keep watching. And thanks for digging these things up, Joe. Very interesting developments. Absolutely. Not a problem, Kelly. And uh, just a reminder to our listeners, uh, you can subscribe to Energy Security Forum newsletters, which includes uh, these and many other stories. Uh, and it's delivered right to your inbox every Wednesday. You can uh, subscribe to it on our website. Thanks, Joe. You know, we're, we're really happy to be, and you, I'm sure you'll, people will enjoy the interview that I'm about to have with Crystal Smith. It was very enlightening and uh, speaks well to the movement forward in the resource space for uh, Indigenous peoples. So have a listen. Thank you. For today's interview, recorded March 30, 2023, we discussed the Cedar LNG project, what it means for Canada's involvement in the global LNG space, and the impact of Indigenous involvement on its development. Really, really pleased to have joined me from Kitimat Village, British Columbia, Crystal Smith. Crystal is Chief Counselor as well as a committee member for the Executive and Stakeholder Relations Committee for the Heisler Nation. She is also the chair of the First Nations LNG Alliance. Crystal, thanks so much for joining us on Energy Security Cubed. Thank you for having me. Let's get right after it. Give us some background on the Cedar LNG project. Uh, so Cedar LNG is a project that I've actually been a board member of since we started. So our consultants at, at the time, our negotiating team, commercial team here at the nation, uh, was successful in negotiating 400 MMCF of capacity off the Coastal Gas Think Pipeline, which feeds the LNG Canada uh, project. And once LNG Canada and Coastal Gas Link uh, announced their positive final investment decision, it literally gave Cedar a life. Uh, so since that time, our, our nation has been working very diligently. A huge focus of ours, of course, was supporting the LNG Canada and Coastal Gas Link projects up to their FID. And since then, our huge focus and our huge push has been on the Cedar LNG project, right from forming the first board, informing our people of, of what the potential of the project was, um, to finding partners. And, and now we're at the stage that we're at. We were approved for both federal and provincial EA processes. And now we are in the stages of working up to what I'm literally praying for is a positive final investment decision. Before we go any further and get into some of the details of how that, what's evolved so far, trying to be the devil's advocate, what do you think could be a stumbling block between now and then? I mean, there, there are so many different factors that the nation has been fortunate enough to follow in, in regards to our experience with LNG Canada. As they were working on their project, uh, they would give us pretty in-depth information in regards to how all the pieces of the puzzle would would fit together. Again, there's so many different factors. We still have permits that we have to work on with the province and with the feds in regards to uh, the, the work. Uh, we have uh, the facility that are the floating facility that that requires to be built. You take into factors what this world is seeing in regards to the impacts of COVID, um, worker shortages, the rise in cost of all of the goods that are required. Uh, there are so many different factors and, and our team keeps constantly working and pushing uh, in every parameter of giving us the options to, to be most successful. But we acknowledge that there, 
there are so many different factors that need to still fall into place for this project to become successful, including uh, the commercial negotiations that are occurring uh, for, for what is, I, I would deem the most important aspect, our off-takers. We'll get into that in a minute, but I, I, let's back up a little bit. A few weeks ago, you and BC Premier David Eby made a joint announcement that Cedar LNG had met the, and you've mentioned this, but let's go into a little deeper, had met the requirements of the BC Environmental Assessment Office, which led to the project's environmental approval by both BC and the federal government. So for our listeners, how does this feather into the, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, environmental assessment? Uh, is there anything more to do environmentally? For the most part, yeah. Even any other project in, in the in the territory that's been given their environmental assessment certification, there are still other areas of permits that are required. So we would still have to continue that, that environmental work throughout the lifetime of the project. Uh, so there is still work that we need to complete um, but the, the overall support um, of getting and obtaining that certification uh, was a green light to continue that work. So we're good there. So what's next from uh, between now and the FID final investment decision? Oh, like give us an overarching, I understand there's a thousand things to do. Again, it's the, the engineering designing that is continuous in, in regards to our work on the facility. Um, it's actually finding an EPC provider. Yeah, that I was just going to, I was just going to, I was going to feed you that. So, <laughs> so you're in the process of engineering procurement and construction. Now, yes, that, that's, yeah. that's the, the, the EPC that, that though, that's the work that has to be done now, I guess, prior to any kind of turning, putting a shovel in the ground. Right. Yes. So there's so many different files that are in continuous motion. Uh, we have been on a very tight timeline, so we've got a, a very good team that's definitely being, um, very efficient, and I believe that our partner Pemina has definitely been extremely um, efficient and mindful of of the success and and what this project means to the nation. Uh, so you know the team that they've put together, and with our support, has been absolutely uh, quite the experience in regards of the success that we've seen so far. Why don't we talk about that a little bit? Because I think that it was a stroke of genius to do this. Like, you know, to proceed on something this large by yourselves would have been really, really difficult. And I think picking Pembina as a partner was probably pretty smart. Um, how did that come about? Did you go and were you romanced by several companies and then Pembina won the contest? Or sorry to use a bad metaphor, but how did you get into bed with Pembina? <laughs> And I think I think for the most part we describe it as a marriage. So I think it, okay, you're, you're all, oh, it's okay to be in bed then. Definitely in line in line with our our description of it. Uh, so even that was the entire process um, for the nation. What we did at the beginning as the Cedar Board was set out some values in terms of what our expectation um, as a nation and as a an, an essential corporation. Uh, would be. And so we set some standards in regards to what would our expectations be, what would our elected council members feel comfortable in presenting to our people. So in, in regards to um, our outlook, we, we definitely wanted to keep our core cultural values um, at, the, at the forefront of our decision making. So we set out some, some parameters in the beginning of what the technologies that would be used. So for listeners that aren't fully aware of um, our community, we had um, approximately five 
four or five facilities that were proposed for our territory, LNG facilities. And one of them had been a, uh, a floating concept. And so our nation had to go through a lot of the preliminary work, um, educate ourselves on, on the technologies and, and what each of the systems would bring to our community. So in, in that sense, we were talking about air cooling versus water cooling, um, electric drives versus gas-driven um, power. Uh, so we took what we had learned over the years and kind of implemented it and set ourselves in above standard in regards to what expectations we would um, have for the project. So we, we essentially put out an RFP process and had uh, many companies respond to them. We, we selected it down and we actually spent a week in Vancouver reviewing and interviewing the potential partners uh, that we would choose. I think what is important that I definitely like to leave the listeners with is one proponent came in and uh, we had explained why we had chosen uh, the technologies that we did and we were fully aware that they were going to be more expensive. They, they weren't going to be essentially bringing the returns back to the nation because of the cost up front of, of how much it would be to, to operate an E-Drive powered facility of having to pay for the power and how much the air cooling systems would be in, compared to, in comparison to the water cooled. And we had a, one, of the, one of the proponents had come in and, and throughout the entire first half hour of the conversation, they kept telling us that repeatedly. And our response was, we would not bring a project to our people that we would not feel and stand behind just simply for revenues. Most of those interviews took three to four hours. That was the shortest interview because I saw that they weren't willing to change their approach. So I essentially said, I think this conversation is, is done. And that proponent walked out. So in regards to from that scope to where we're partnered with Pemina um, was a lot of our values aligned. Their desire to, and their respect for a project that was majority owned by a First Nations uh, community and, and the fact that our board representation is equal in regards to our input. A lot of the values we had lined up with theirs. So it, it was essentially a, a, a great fit and, and has been since. That's an interesting take because I think over your lifetime, you've seen, you've and I'm going a little bit off script here because I think it's important, but you've seen a shift that way. Have you not over time? Like, you know, in the past de generation or maybe two generations, even before your generation, like there's a definite shift of that other proponent, who cares? Doesn't matter who it was. They're just another one, of, another company that was coming in there looking for a really good deal. And this is the way we're going to do it. We're going to pay you some money. So just get out of the way so we can go ahead. Well, that's not how it works anymore, right? Like it's not. And uh, I think Pemina is a very, uh, I'm going to say ethically sound and governance company. Um, we have, we, this organization has a long and storied history with Pemina. I could go into that. We don't have to. Um, the, the end, I guess my comment would be, Crystal, the end of the day, you were, you were playing the long game. And if we, if you don't want to play the long game with us, then we're not interested because that's Most what definitely. it's about, right? Like it's the long game here. We're talking about the next generation and the one after that, not you and I, it doesn't matter. It's the, it's 50 years from now. And I think that comes into my next question, um, I want to talk about labor and employment in the area. Like, you know, the whole world is 
seeing a bunch of people my age retiring and skills skilled trades are they're running out and and uh, there's going to be a giant amount of trades re- required and expertise uh, stem people as well as but lots like at the core of it people putting shit together like that's what's going to happen here um, the combination of work on LNG Canada as well as your project means a need for an enormous number of workers during construction and then some to carry forward with uh, skilled jobs after how does that fit into those goals and requirements and uh, what you talk about about your nation and it's what what it wants to see are you comfortable is there are we a long way away from that or or what's where does the rubber meet the road there with lng canada i think that the rubber kind of hit the road back when when they they announced their positive final investment decision so we've definitely our education and capacity department uh was one or two employees we've now got approximately 15 within that department and and that's just a focus on providing the programs and services that would allow our people to to experience that success. Uh, So in in regards to all the opportunities that that are there, we're bringing uh, and partnering with one other nation, which I think is absolutely key, and two partnering with uh, both industry, government, and um, institutes that would allow those programs to come and be provided locally. And while I speak on behalf of Heisla with a with a focus on our membership, the idea is to bring it to our, our local communities, um, whether it be Kinemat Terrace or any other nation that's in their surrounding territories. So we're we're looking to bring and and have that brought locally, but we also have a, a huge focus on membership that reside elsewhere that are taking programs and getting their bachelor's degrees, their their MBAs, their I know that we have one very young, successful lady that is very close to passing the bar that's going to be a, a lawyer. Uh, so in, in regards to having that aspect and these opportunities being provided, we have definitely hit the ground running. We missed a, an opportunity with an experience uh, through the Rio Tinto Modernization Project, where we were simply focused on jobs. And when that project was completed, uh, we found ourselves without any other opportunity for our membership to continue, um, be it they came right out of uh, construction jobs where where they didn't necessarily advance their skills. So through through that learning opportunity, we now focused on giving our membership and working with our partners, our joint venture partners, and LNG Canada and, and Fleur to provide meaningful opportunity that their, their skill sets that they develop will be transferable to to wherever they find themselves uh, once this project is completed. In regards to Cedar LNG, our focus is definitely to provide that employment opportunity careers, um, lifelong careers for our membership. Uh, So right now we've got our teams working very diligently in focusing in on going to the local schools and providing that opportunity of information sharing of what expectations to have what schooling would be required in order to have that successful career with CEDAR. Uh, so we're definitely pushing and, and working very hard um, to accomplish those goals. Would I be right in assuming that there should be a dovetailing of a lot of the skilled workers coming out of the LNG Canada project on a timeline basis? Would the, a lot of that should be able to continue to your project. Would that not be right? 
it would definitely i even after the announcement of just the not not just the ea but after the announcement of the ea certification i got a couple of calls and a couple of messages saying where do i apply for a job with cedar so I, I, it, it's definitely going to be a good timing for us uh, but what we also have to be mindful of is uh the potential of phase two for lng canada so right. that might extend so we need to be mindful of those um, aspects of what's going on in in our territory throughout the next five to six years. I don't know if you can tell me this or not, but how many people will the Cedar LNG project employ once it's up and running? About a hundred. And they'll be, those are careers that are high paying jobs, sophisticated work going on uh, for a long time. I got, that's, it's so important. And, and the, the economic benefit to the nation should be pretty substantial, I would think. Is it a game changer for Heisler Nation? Absolutely. I smile and I get, I literally get Yeah, I can see it in the screen. Thought of, thought of it. So it is definitely a, a very historic impact on, on our community and, and one that I'm hoping that we're doing a good job in, in keeping um, the corporate knowledge in, in by means of speaking about it, but also just having the, the reasoning so that our, our people... 50 years from now can take a look back and see exactly where the changes occurred within our, within our nation. And more specifically the individual impacts on our people. That's great. Let's go into the weeds a little bit. A few months ago, it was announced that the first phase of LNG Canada would have to go forward with industrial gas. You know, you've mentioned this uh, about power and and cooling. Um, But I want to go a little deeper because it's important. Um, that LNG Canada would go forward with industrial gas turbines rather than the planned electricity for its operations. It isn't because of misdesign. It's just the simple fact that the local grid would not be able to provide the needed electricity. You're still planning to be 100% electric from BC Hydro, as I understand it. Um, is it because the project is smaller or are there other factors at play? And do you want to elaborate on that at all? It is definitely because the project is a lot smaller. I mean, I, just off the top of my my memory, I believe we're, we're one fourth the size of LNG Canada. So yeah, that's, in, that rings a bell scale, with me too. Yeah, yeah. In in scale, we we are definitely a lot smaller. So uh, we can have that power supplied. Uh, what is required of the project is is building um, a transmission line from where the existing infrastructure exists. Um, out to site and and essentially a, a few upgrades. So that is possible for hydro to power um, Cedar. Uh, so LNG Canada is a whole different scale. So I have one more thing. I, and folks that are listening, before we got on the tape part of the podcast, we were just visiting with Crystal a little bit. And she was talking about a trip she just made to Turkey. And she's going to tell us about electric tugboats which I had never heard of before. So take it away, my friend. Tell us about your, this is very exciting. I can't imagine the, you know, being around the coast a bit in my life, the ability to move big ships around with electric motors is interesting to me. So tell us what you found out in Turkey and what's going on with the Heisla Nation regarding this. So we're definitely proud to be partnered with C-SPAN. So our, our joint venture partnership is called High C. They're our longest standing joint venture partner and you know, the, the Crystal, push- before you go, just tell us, tell the audience a little bit. They might not know who C-SPAN is. Oh, C-SPAN is the one of the largest uh, tugboat vessel operations here in in British Columbia. They operate out of North Vancouver. Um, so they've built 
LNG operated ferries for, for Vancouver and, and Vancouver Island. Um, so we've been partnered with them for, for quite a few years in our work and, and because of the whole value chain of the project and other impacts, uh, we felt it was important to minimize impacts in every aspect of where we're participating in the project. And C-SPAN getting into the scope and focus of having uh, that type of responsible environment, less environmental impact business. Um, we built the first three fully uh, electric drive tugs and they will be in operation for LNG Canada. Uh, there are two other escort tugs that are also electric, uh, but also powered by LNG that will be off full operation here in our territory. Uh, so very minimal sound impacts, very minimal environmental impacts. Going over to Turkey, you know, traveling for work isn't all it's... Um, no, I can attest to that. Yeah, it's the, the, the romance and the glory of it wears off really fast. <laughs> Huge, especially when you have to take 16 hours to get there. Right. Um, so, you know, when C-SPAN was planning this event, I, I had never realized uh, the actual magnitude of what we were about to take part in until we were at the Sanmar shipyard in Istanbul. And the pride of every company in setting that bar, it was absolutely inspirational to be a part of and to see Heisla names put on the first electric tugs. I truly believe we've set a standard uh, in regards to expectations in, in our territory and our partners are absolutely amazing to be working with. Again, aligning the values and setting the bar for all industry uh, to take part in. Uh, while we were in Turkey, we were told that when High Sea and Sanmar made the announcements of the electric tugs, uh, Sanmar got more requests to build more of the same standard tugs for other parts of the world. So, you know, it's it's absolutely amazing to have partnerships that are able to provide these different standards while providing meaningful opportunity for our membership and the local communities. When do you take delivery of those tugs? So we've got three of them. So I believe the first one, the high sea we get, Watmas, will be on the coast approximately July of this year. That's cool. You'll be that, there'll be lots of publicity around that. I'm sure. Yeah, that's great. What, um, why? How did Turkey like? Is that the only place that builds them? It seems to be a long ways away. I would think that there'd be some place in the United States or. Well, Korea too, but that, that was the only other place. I, I who, who else builds tugboats? I didn't. I don't even know. Uh, I'm I'm definitely not an expert in the industry, but I do definitely know that Turkey was not the only place uh, C-SPAN looked to build the tugs. It definitely had a combination of prior um, industry setting records. I mean, Sanmar had in our educational um, opportunities there's of learning of who we were partnered with and who we were doing business with. They definitely set a standard in regards to the first of technologies coming from Sanmar. Um, so that was a C-SPAN process that they went through. Um, but I was told that they they definitely viewed other areas that potentially could. And, and Sanmar and their reach of expertise in the industry were able to pull together a lot of the experts that designed and engineered a, a lot of the, the tugs. I mean, not only are they the first electrified tugs, they're the first tugs that will be inclusive in the presentation that I participated in. 
we're very inclusive of women in the industry and, and having an environment within the tugs. So they're the first tugs that have a bathroom and shower attached to each of the individual rooms that are on the tugs. So it's a very welcoming environment for women to join um, the fleet and, and the team. Um, so in regards to that, they had said that the engineering and the designing, uh, just hearing the engineers speak about the difficulties and the sleepless nights that they had in regards to even the spacing on it, on the tugs. Um, so they definitely have a level of expertise that C-SPAN um, was able to see. I think that's so fascinating. I'll, I'll, we'll watch closely for this to happen and, and uh, congratulations on that. Crystal, this has been um, very enlightening for me and I think for our listeners. I think that I want to commend you on getting this project one step closer to the finish line. I know there's a long way to go yet, but you know these EAs and the IAA impacts assessment, um, they're really big steps. And I think anybody that's been around a major project understands that. So, you know, more power to you. Let's just make sure that, that the rest of the country can hear it and understand the importance. Um, we always ask our guest, if you have a chance, are you reading any particular book that you'd like to share with us? Um, actually, yeah, I actually just started uh, a book called uh, The 21 Things That You Didn't Know About the Indian Act. So far, it's a book that can provide both inspiration and definitely a little bit of heartbreak. Uh, yeah, get you wound up. Like, you know, I, yeah. like I, I didn't know that we'd get into the Indian Act in this conversation, but I always welcome First Nations people to come and talk about the Indian Act, whatever they want well, to say on my show. You I, go right I, would, ahead. I would really recommend that 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 people take a read and 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 see exactly what the Indian Act was intended to do. Um, but I, it, on your comment in regards to commending myself on on how far we've gotten, I, I, I can't say without leaving this podcast to to say thank you to our entire. Whew, I was getting emotional. That's all right. To our entire staff to our previous leadership, to our people for giving us and allowing us this opportunity for our nation to flourish and to thrive uh, without the tireless, endless work of a lot of people that have brought our nation to see this success to this point. I'd commend each of them a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of time away from our families. And I just wanted to say, and, and thank you to our membership for allowing me this opportunity uh, to be in this position to see our nation come this far. Well, that's why you're a leader, and and thank you for that. And I think that what Canadians and those that are others that are listening need to take away from this is this can be a blueprint for all kinds of projects coming forth in Canada. You know, I, I'm hearing these noises in the Ring of Fire in Ontario. These are issues that a construct can be built to solve these problems and work for everyone. Again, the Heisler Nation, you, all the people that work there, thank you. We'll just keep setting the bar. It'll keep moving up. This will get done, and we'll move on to the next thing because there's a whole bunch of stuff coming. The federal government just spent two days talking about critical minerals. Um, we do quite a bit of work around that. That's one of the things that fits into all of these things if we all pull together. So, again, Crystal, thanks so much. We look forward to having you on the podcast again and getting an update maybe a year from now on where we are with Cedar LNG and how many other tugboats you've bought. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Energy Security Cubed on the Canadian Global Affairs Podcast Network. You can find the CGAI Network on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you like the show, give it a rating. 
You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you like this episode and want to help us keep creating content, you can support us by donating at cgai.ca slash support. Energy Security Cubed is brought to you by our team at CGAI. Thanks go out to our producer, Joe Kalman, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Kelly Ogle. Thanks for joining us on Energy Security Cubed.